Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. My name is Training Wheels. I'm very pleased to be with you this morning, bringing you a special edition of Radiotherapy for International Women's Day. I'm joined in the studio by G-Spot. It's our first time meeting in person. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, We've also got two special guests joining us in the studio today. We've got Dr. Pallavi Prathivadi, who's a GP and chair of the AMA Victoria Women in Medicine group. And we have Natalie Konjic, Program Manager at Birth for Humankind. We'll introduce you both properly in a minute. I'm really excited to have you both here. Thank you so much for joining us. We've also got Panel Beater in the studio who's pressing the buttons, but he doesn't have a microphone today because it's women to the front for International (laughs) Women's Day. Absolutely. Sisters doing it for themselves. Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get to it and start off with some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've got some news. I'm going to give a quick update on coronavirus in a minute, but G-Spot, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Training Wheels. I'm very excited to be here on International Women's Day and talking all about women's issues and the broader impacts on society. I'd like to share with you a news piece that was... Um, brought to my attention because of my experiences with my own patients. Basically, I I had these sort of young women in front of me almost apologetically telling me about their sex lives. And Mm. I'm their clinical psychologist, been working with them for years sometimes, and they're apologising to me for telling me about a very important part of their life. And Mm. I was like, my goodness. I, I, you know, I hope others haven't been withholding, but it does seem that that young women are experiencing um, sexually related personal distress. Hmm. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about a recent study uh, published in uh, Fertility and Sterility by Jeng and colleagues. And if you want to check it out, it's called The Prevalence of Sexual Dysfunctions and Sexually Related Distress in Young Women, a Cross-Sectional Survey. And what Jeng and colleagues did was um, an online survey with 6,986 women in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. And they found some pretty shocking results. They found that 50.2% of young Australian women experienced some form of sexually related personal distress. Wow. And yeah, and this means... um, the degree of feeling guilty, embarrassed, stressed or unhappy about their own sex lives. And I think that probably explains why these young women felt uncomfortable talking to even their own clinical psychologist Mm. about their sex lives. And just to give you a bit more information, um, 29.6% of these women experienced uh, this distress without dysfunction. And 20.6% had at least one dysfunction. Hmm. And the most common of these dysfunctions was low sexual self-image. So that's how you feel about yourself as a sexual being. I had a quick read of this article that you found, G-Spot, and I saw that breastfeeding was associated with low sexual self-image, which I did have a bit of a chuckle about as someone who's been breastfeeding for (laughs) over 18 months now and my boobs feel like they go down to my knees. I can definitely (laughs) sympathise with that feeling. See, I wondered if this might be a real... (laughs) You know, this 50.2% is disturbing. And I think it speaks to 
us really as health professionals, asking young women about their sex lives, not being afraid to bring up the topic because it seems like they're afraid to bring up the topic themselves. And having a fulfilling sex life is a huge part of one's well-being. Amazing. Thank you so much for bringing that G-Spot. I was wondering, our special guests, if you had anything you wanted to add, you're both women who work in the area of women's health and health in general. Have you had any, do you have any insights to share? Um, I mean, I think the, the space that we work in, which is with women who are um, who are pregnant or have recently given birth, I mean, I think obviously that's a time where, mm. you know, your, your sex life, your sex drive, everything is is probably at, at, at its lowest point, <laughs> sort of learning how to do something completely new. Mm. new. Um, I mean, it's not really something we work out within our program, but I, I imagine it's something that, you know, women... And they probably put it to the the bottom of their their list because they're coming in saying, "Why is my baby doing this? Why is my body doing this?" And you know that ends up being the the lowest priority. But I think we need to think about ways to to bump it up to the top as well because it's obviously part of your your well being and your health. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing that G spot. Thank you. I'm going to give a quick little coronavirus update, which is becoming a weekly tradition here on Radiotherapy. <laughs> um, the latest figures, as of this morning, are that over a hundred thousand cases have been confirmed worldwide, and around three and a half thousand deaths have been reported from the new coronavirus, COVID nineteen, as it's known. Mm. This week, we've also seen an increase in cases in Australia, which you know we remained sort of fairly under control here for a while. Um, which you know, I sort of I remember a few weeks ago talking about the travel ban from China thinking it seemed like a racist policy in hindsight I don't know if we can say it was successful necessarily Mm. maybe it sort of slowed things down for a while Uh, you know I guess there's positives and negatives that come with all these things aren't there Anyway, we've also had a few cases, um, the first few deaths in Australia, and I saw a little notification pop up on my phone before that another person has just died in New South Wales overnight, I believe, from um, COVID-19. And we're also seeing some community transmission in Australia now. So that means it's not just people who've recently returned from overseas with the virus. There are some people who have not travelled at all who are um, catching the, the virus in Australia. So it looks like the virus has really arrived properly in Australia now, but there's still no need to panic. Remember, it's a relatively mild illness in around 80% of cases, if not more. And in particular, children and young people appear to be at very, very low risk of serious illness. There are simple measures we can all take to reduce our risk of of contracting the virus, which include diligent hand hygiene, which is all drilled into us all the time in the health professions. But for the rest of us, it's very important. So use soap and water if you can. Hand sanitizer is okay if you're out and about as well. Uh, Cough and sneeze hygiene is another important measure. So that means coughing into your elbow or into a tissue and then chucking the tissue away, washing your hands. If you're sick, stay at home as much as you can um, so we don't expose other people to our illness. Get the flu shot when it becomes available, which will be in the next few weeks. At the moment, if you are sick and you haven't recently returned from overseas or been in contact with anyone with confirmed COVID-19, it's really at the moment, it's still more likely that you have the common cold or a regular, mm. fu- regular flu, so there's no need to panic. Uh, however, if you're concerned, of course, always go and see your GP. You can ring ahead ahead of time to let them know you're coming and they'll let you know if you need to wear a mask or anything like that. There's also a hotline you can call 24 hours a day. It's 1800-020-080. If you're concerned, they've got the latest information available for you there. Dr. Prathivadi, before I interview, introduce you properly, are there anything, as a GP, anything you'd like to share with us, your experience? Is there a lot of panic in the community? Boy, is there. Mm. <laughs> I think uh, 
I think we're having a really hard time in general practice dealing with the huge amount of health anxiety and panic that um, although the media can be terrific at times, I, I think the media could be a lot nicer right now and remember that they also, you know, public media especially has a, a real moral responsibility to make sure they are getting good, high quality scientific evidence mm -hmm. across in a way that is not going to enrage people, cause riots in supermarkets. Yeah. And do, do we need to rush out and get toilet paper? Is this my medical opinion? <laughs> sure. Okay, so all of my years of medical training suggest we don't. <laughs> I've, um, it's been really hard, I think, as doctors looking at what's happening with the crisis and the reaction. It's really quite disappointing and disheartening. Mm. And I think we're really seeing humans at their worst right now. I agree. We're losing I agree. common sense. It remains to be seen how how serious the illness will become in Australia. Mm. You know, I guess yeah, only time will tell. But we've got a good health system here. Let's just be reasonable, everybody. Yeah, I and, agree. And if you if you think that you might be affected, please please call your GP ahead of time. Do not turn up to the clinic. We do not have the personal protective gear uh, and mm. adequate measures to deal with a positive coronavirus very unexpectedly turning up. That's really helpful advice. Mm, Thank you so much. Important. Let's go to a couple of announcements and then we'll come back and start our interviews. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Dr. Pallavi Prathivadi is a specialist GP and PhD candidate at Monash University. She will be a Fulbright Scholar at the Stanford University School of Medicine in 2020-2021. Dr. Prathivadi currently serves as chair of the Australian Medical Association Women in Medicine Group and was named the Australian Registrar of the Year in 2019 by the College of GPs. Dr. Prathivadi, thank you for joining us on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me and happy International Women's Day. Thank you so much for joining us. It's very exciting, isn't it? Um, I'm just it, so impressed with uh, Pallavi's uh, fantastic introduction there and congratulations on your Fulbright, uh, Fulbright Scholarship. That is amazing. Thank you. When do you make the big move? End of May, I think. Oh, wow. Soon. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I'm optimistic that my travel plans are not going to get derailed. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm yeah. going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've decided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Absolutely. Good on you. And you're not taking a suitcase full of toilet paper, which is fantastic. <laughs> it is International Women's Day, of course. So, Dr. Prathivadi, I'd love to hear from you about the Women in Medicine group. Full disclosure, I am a member of this group as well. Uh, and we, we love having you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be. I'm, I'm new. I'm new on the group, so I don't have as much expertise to share. Pallavi, can you tell me a bit mm. about the group? Yes, so the Australian Medical Association uh, has state-level groups and we're a special interest group called Women in Medicine. Um, and I think we have somewhere between 10 and 15 uh, members who run our group, um, ranging from first-year medical students to very senior consultant uh, specialists. And we are trying to improve gender equality within um, medicine in all fields, improve opportunities for women, medical students and doctors for personal and professional development. Um, having women mentors is, uh, you know, we've seen historically that they really improve outcomes for women um, to help get more senior leadership positions, to do better in their career, better understanding when they want to balance their job with other personal uh, responsibilities like carer responsibilities and having dedicated special interest groups like ours, we're hoping will help improve that in the field of medicine. 
That's fantastic. It's a bit of a if you see it, you can be it situation. Exactly right. Among other things. What do you think are the biggest issues facing women in medicine at the moment? Yeah, in this country? I think there's... um, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have hundreds. We are nowhere near gender equality. I, I think what we're seeing is that we... Uh, definitely improving women entering different kinds of specialties, male-dominated special mm-hmm. specialties, things like neurosurgery um, and, uh, you know, ENT, orthopedics. Um, we have huge numbers of women coming into general practice, which is my specialty, where it's uh, slightly more women in the training program. But as you get more senior, as you start to move towards the leadership positions and really high higher roles uh the representation of women really starts to go down and this is becoming even more striking in recent years we're seeing that medical school graduates are becoming a majority women but yes, that's sure. still not reflected in leadership positions yeah unfortunately no so when we look at medical boards hospital boards it's still incredibly male dominated um which means that you know that that whole thing that you hear about the pipeline women are getting lost somewhere probably early to mid-career and we need to figure out what is happening and how do we address those barriers and improve um improve that because it's not because of merit it isn't because women can't do the job and they're not qualifying for the leadership positions that is not at all in the picture there is something else going on where women are not mm-hmm. given the opportunities they're not making it to the opportunities or they're not um, asking for them something i find i think is a, a big problem in medicine and it's probably true in most industries really is a lot of it is who you know not what you know and when you're a, a white man who's maybe dad was also a surgeon it's much easier for you to get a reference to get onto a surgical training program that paints you in a very good light when you've already got these connections and and less barriers to making good connections in the professional sphere and it's harder for women to to have those sorts of connections when we're already facing lots of cultural barriers would you say that's part of the problem word i could not agree (laughs) (laughs) and uh, what i will say is consider you know, it's hard enough for women. What about women of color and mm. women who identify, you know, in other ways, LGBTI? Um, it, there are more and more barriers. The more minority you identify with, the further from straight white man you are. Exactly right. Mm. That was such a good summary. <laughs> um, and I mean, we need to keep looking at the women who maybe don't look like us, who we know are further and further away from straight white men and how do we get that woman up on the board and how do we get that woman as head of the unit how do we make that happen absolutely I'm wondering if you think we do our patients a disservice by having a medical profession that doesn't adequately represent the patients that we look after by which I mean you know a a group of hospital doctors that are mostly old Mm. white men Mm. that's not the patient demographic that Mm. is real in Australia Mm. for the most part. Do you think it impacts on patients? I think we know it impacts on patients. Mm. So America does a lot of research about this and they look at things like obstetric outcomes um, for black women and they know that they have significantly higher mortality rates from same uh, same infections, um, worsening outcomes from sepsis, later, later diagnosis of serious conditions and that race is a factor regardless of what type of woman you know, whether it's a white woman or black yeah. woman, we know that race is a factor uh, on outcomes. Yes. So the more, say, black women doctors you get or brown women doctors you get, the more we are likely to recognise those things earlier and hopefully improve outcomes. You have a master's in pain management yep. and your PhD is in opioid prescribing in general practice. Mm. I'm wondering what 
I've got a follow-up question, but first of mm. all, what is it about that area of medicine that interests you? Mm, yeah, it's an odd one, right? <laughs> uh, it's not joyous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, I started to get really interested in pain because of culture. So different cultures experience pain in different ways, and we know that pain is largely psychosocial. Um, not biological. Therefore, culture, language, identity is going to affect the way a person experiences pain. Um, and then I decided to do a master's in pain management to explore and understand this a bit more because pain is a crap thing that no one wants to go through. Um, and I ended up doing my, my research and my thesis looking at how are opioids, um, which are drugs like morphine, prescribed across the world. And I found that 79% of the world's opioids are used by six countries. Wow. Oh, it's shocking. So it means that most of the world do not have access to morphine or those important medications for severe pain, cancer-related pain, HIV, AIDS-related pain, and palliative care. Mm, and I struggled with the massive inequities that we're seeing here in mm. very basic human management. I mean, access to pain management is a human right. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so then I decided I wanted to continue that research, looking at uh, worldwide opioid policy, access availability. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to start with this country and what I what I do, which is general practice. So that's why I started my PhD, looking at how do GPs improve opioid, um, how do GPs prescribe opioids, and how can we improve it to make it more evidence based. That's fantastic. And you said you mentioned there's a lot of research in America about the ways race and gender impact the sorts of care that patients receive. And there's a lot of data out there that pain is recognised less. That for In particular, black women receive less pain relief mm. than white women and men in the emergency department. Mm. I'm wondering if that's something you've come across. Are you? Is that something that you yeah. see in your practice? I don't know if I see that in my practice. Um, but it's definitely something that I've come across in the literature. And there's really uh, there's interesting stuff out there also about the use of risk reduction measures. So when we prescribe opioids, um, that whole category of medication can have risks, including addiction, dependence, death. They're not the safest drugs in the world, although they are important. So we have to choose how we prescribe them very carefully. Um, and so there's a whole group of things called risk reduction strategies, which means how can we make sure the risk of using these opioids is lower, like having small quantities, making sure we see patients regularly, doing urine drug testing, writing contracts for patients on long-term opioids, and we find that in America, the use of those risk reduction strategies are actually higher in black patients, mm, black men, wow. lower in white patients, which instinctively probably means that the doctors are making a racial judgment about who needs these risk reduction mm. measures. Does it actually mean that those patients are getting safer prescribing? I don't think we know that. Mm. But it's a surprising finding, actually. That is very interesting. Mm. I was going to ask about um, pelvic pain and menstrual pain, Pallavi, because mm. that's something that comes up in my own practice quite a bit. Mm. And just the difference between, I suppose, seeing a male doctor and a female doctor and actually getting the, the care that you need, and pardon me, and, um, yeah. and also diagnosis around endometriosis and things like yeah. that. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I bet you see heaps of that. Um, I do. <laughs> it's really coming out in the media the last year or so mm. with the, new, the, the national strategy to improve endometriosis. We know that we're missing mm. most of the cases 
Um, I find it I find it really hard to comment on this because in my clinical practice, most of my patients are women. I would only see one or two male patients a day, I think, mm. and majority of them are young. Mm. So it's very common for me to see a woman with pelvic pain. Mm. Um, and I, I think given my patient demographic, I, I'm very quick to do that ultrasound, refer to the gynae to, mm. to try medication for this and be very mindful that there might be a more, there might be a cause to this chronic pelvic pain. Mm. Um, I think you'd be more interesting to ask a man, Matt, mm. a male doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll have a male doctor on very soon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not today. No, not today. International Men's Day. Here we come. <laughs> One question that I'm going to ask all of our guests today and, and G-Spot as well, if you're interested, mm. is a question I'm borrowing from Julia Gillard. She has a podcast called A Podcast of One's Own where she interviews prominent women in all sorts of fields, uh, from politics to comedy to academia, all sorts of things. And one question, I can't remember the exact wording, but one question she asks more or less is, if you were president of the world for a day, what change would you make to improve the lives of women? Pallavi, I'm wondering what Mm. your thoughts are. Is this you tapping me on the shoulder for this job? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm I have cool definitely pulled the strings. <laughs> I'm cool with it. Um, all right, is, I'm going to try not to rant here. Please rant away. It's <laughs> right, International it's Women's Day exactly. after all. This is the show for it. Yeah, this, this is the time. For it. Um, I, I often worry that we are really getting into this age of what I like to call Instagram feminism, which means a very superficial form of feminism where we wear t-shirts that say the future is female and yes woman and you know, honestly <laughs> what I think is garbage and there's a lot of corporate interests mm. in totally that. totally Absolutely. um just handing out mugs with um female now <laughs> lady just, boss yeah lady boss oh that's a good one and I'm, I'm really missing like the what is the feminist agenda here how are we improving mm. the rights of women worldwide how are we improving the lives and I, um, if I if I had that kind of role as president, what I would try and do is really just improve the safety of the whatever 3.5 billion people in this world, mm. trying to remember the billions of women who don't have access to clean water and sanitation, who don't have access to good health care, who are not making it through primary school because of poverty um, and all sorts of other really significant issues. If we care about women's rights and this issue, you have to care about the women who are being left behind. And the women, I mean, I agree. Like, I think it's great that we've got teenagers now in this country who are confident and speaking up and sure, Instagram has its roles, but we're just bringing up the same group of women who are being brought up. And we are, I think we're leaving behind a very large group of women. That's Mm -hmm. so unfair. And I, I think we need to remember that uh, the more of a voice we have, um, that we should use that for good. And we have a moral obligation to to really care about a world that's bigger than this Instagram following that's bigger than the 200 or whatever that's going on right now. Mm. Couldn't agree with you more. And there's, you know, there's so much data that helping women and girls come out of poverty has such wide-ranging benefits for the whole world. You know, it's, it's been identified as one of the most effective... Um, what's the word measures against yeah. climate change <laughs> oh, yeah. is um, bringing yeah. women and girls out of poverty Absolutely. Um, increases countries GDP uh, improves health outcomes for the whole family improves literacy for the next generation 
uh, improves health and obstetric outcomes, I think even of the, the second generation to follow. Wow. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Amazing stuff. <laughs> Natalie, our, our next guest, is nodding very emphatically over there. <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add with your experience? Um, I mean, sure. I think... I think I'm close enough to the mic now. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> good, good. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think I couldn't. I couldn't agree with that more. And, and you know, some of those things are quite small changes, but they make such a big difference. And you know, if you're starting at that at that route with you know with mothers and babies, which is obviously my mm. particular mm. area of interest, you know, that that's how you change the world step by step. It's mm. yeah, absolutely. G spot. This might be a good time. Would you like to answer the question if you were president of the world for a day? That's, I thought because it's only a day, I'd go for something <laughs> a, bit more, yeah, a bit more small scale. And I just thought this is something that I do and I see a lot of the women around me doing is just apologising for being there, mm. taking up space. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to stop doing that. Mm. I, I think I am a bit of a chronic apologiser and I'm not going to apologise for that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's just about just being, yeah, being allowed to take up space, being allowed to have a voice. And I think if I could stop women from doing that for a day I think everyone around them might pick up on that and mm. and it start might start to become a habit in the days to come that's nice that's a nice one thank you this is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organization in Melbourne Australia to find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the Triple R website rrr.org.au so we didn't ask you before training wheels, what would you do if you were president of the world for a day? I've had a few thoughts about this and I've got two options. My first one is that I would make menstrual hygiene products, contraception and abortion free and accessible and legal everywhere in the world. It's mm, a terrific um, idea. I also have thoughts about how I would make that happen, but that might be too elaborate for <laughs> the five second answer that you've asked for. Um, Maybe we can pick up on it later. Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, and my other option would be to make part-time work mandated. There's no such thing as full-time work anymore. Everybody works part-time mm. and you still get a full-time wage. Look, I'm not an economist. I don't know <laughs> how. We would I make was going to ask how that was going to work. But I believe there are studies that show that if you reduce the work week, you actually are just as productive. So it is. It should be possible. Exactly. Exactly. So in theory, the it should be possible. The idea being that that frees up, particularly couples where there are child-rearing responsibilities, it frees up both members of the couple to both contribute to the workforce and be home and available with their children and other care, caring responsibilities that they might have. Also, just have a life. I think it would make <laughs> everyone's lives much more lovely if, if everyone worked part-time. That's my other big one. Well, I vote for you, Training Wheels, for president. Um, <laughs> that's, that's one vote. Thank you. Exactly. I'll, I'll run your campaign. We'll run it off the radiotherapy platform where you get all your all coronavirus that's right. Sound advice as well. That's right. Speaking of which, if you want to check out our Facebook, it's Radiotherapy on 3RRR Facebook. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, but I don't know what the handles are for those, so maybe just Google us. Totally. <laughs> yes. We're all over socials. Uh, <laughs> obviously. Um, we're very lucky to have with us today Natalie Konjic, who is Birth for Humankind's Programs Manager. And Birth for Humankind is a Melbourne-based non-profit providing community pregnancy and parenting support. Welcome, Natalie, to the show. Thank you very much for having me and happy International Women's Day to everyone. Thank you. 
<laughs> and so, Natalie, can you tell us just a little bit more about what Birth for Humankind actually do? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're based here in Melbourne and we provide a range of support services to women who are pregnant or have recently given birth and who are also experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage um, and may have other complex care needs around their pregnancy and parenting. Um, so our, I guess sort of the heart of our organisation and our flagship program is our volunteer doula support program. Uh, so through this program, we match um, someone from our group of volunteer doulas. We have about 55 to 60, and I'm going to give a little bit of information about what a doula is in just a minute, just in case Thank people you. are thinking, what on earth? Um, <laughs> and th- they're matched with women who are referred to our services and then provided with practical and emotional support throughout their pregnancy, um, throughout their labour and birth, and during that sort of early postnatal period. Um, so our volunteer doulas, a doula, it's, a, it's an ancient Greek word that actually means slave. Um, well, no. but, okay. <laughs> but I think we need to move away from that traditional meaning. Um, a doula has been somebody that supported women and their families in a non-medical role um, throughout that sort of pregnancy, birth and transition to parenthood. So they provide a range of, of support services. Um, in our context, this, this can be really varied and it's something that's developed between the woman and the doula. So it might be things like attending antenatal appointments with the woman, um, helping them to understand their sort of their choices and their specific needs around um, birth and then helping the woman to sort of advocate for, for what she needs. Um, it really provides that continuity of care. Um, we know that while Australia has a great um, maternal and child health system um, there are gaps in the system and it is under-resourced and if you're a woman who's experiencing disadvantage you're much more likely to fall through those gaps um, it comes back to what Pallavi was talking about before you know those issues of of race um, of language of culture um, of financial disadvantage if you're already dealing with those things often your pregnancy and um, parenting mate you might not be able to put that at the front of your mind um, there's so many other things that you need to do each day to survive um, but we believe and research backs us up that having somebody to provide that ongoing um, emotional support and also to reduce that social isolation that so many women um, experience is a really good starting point um, to have a pregnancy and a birth experience that's positive um, and then that has good maternal and child health outcomes for both mum and baby. Absolutely. You're doing such a service there, Natalie. Thank you from all of us in the community. (laughs) I wanted to ask, I've heard about doulas like sort of, um, you know, from Gwyneth Paltrow and Nicole Kidman (laughs) on on my Instagram. And I was wondering, can you, like, do you think they're doing a service by raising awareness of this? What do you think of that? I think it really, I think it really helps. I mean, I think what we said at the beginning of the show about media being sort of both good and evil, uh, I think it's great because people are starting to understand that women need support during pregnancy and early parenting and families need support but often that role so much falls to the woman um, and often they are not able to get it from within their quote-unquote village that we're all somehow looking for out there in the world. (laughs) Um, So I think it's great to know that Gwyneth Paltrow has a doula and you know there's been quite a lot of exposure recently but Often I think that can make women feel, well, Gwyneth Paltrow has that, it's not for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we really believe is that sort of ongoing continuous support is it's not just a nice to have it's actually it's actually a human right um, and we believe that everybody should have it and often the women that are facing so much adversity as part of their pregnancy experience and birth experience need it more than anybody else 
um, and they don't have the financial resources to pay for it. So that's why we've developed a program like Birth for Humankind. It's amazing what difference just having company can make in the early parenting journey in particular. Um, I've got a toddler at home, as regular listeners will know. And I remember early on, I mean, and still now too, but early on when they're crying all the time and you don't know what you're doing and you can't work out why they're crying and you're not sleeping and da-da-da-da-da, sometimes just having a friend over with you the baby still cries just as much and everything's still just as hard but you can just have a bit of more of a sense of humor and it just sort of gives you the space to just kind of take a deep breath and say okay I'm not completely losing my mind here I'm not completely (laughs) on my own in this I'm going to be all right there's someone else here there's another grown-up I can actually have a conversation with it's really amazing what difference just having some company can make and for these women who are really socially disadvantaged it sounds like they don't have access to company a lot of the time definitely um I've been nodding emphatically throughout (laughs) that (laughs) but I suppose yeah I mean absolutely we we find that I think something like seven out of ten of the women who accessed our service last year were had no other form of support. So without wow. the program, oh they probably would have given birth alone. Oh, um, over 50% of our clients uh, have arrived in Australia in the past five years, most of them as asylum seekers or, or refugees. So, I mean, there's so many barriers around language, around understanding the health system, around all of those different things. Wow, yeah. um, and I think, as, as you said, that sort of trusted presence that you know is going to be there and you know is there for you. Um, I think the other thing that can sometimes happen when you have a new baby is everybody's very excited about the baby. Everybody comes out of the woodwork <laughs> and wants to touch your baby and, and you can feel all sorts of feelings about how that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but knowing that somebody's there actually checking in on you and helping connect you to those services and resources can go such a long way um, in terms of um, supporting your mental health. Absolutely invaluable. I agree, Natalie. Don't touch the baby. Um, <laughs> just joking there. <laughs> well, some people can, but of you know. Course, of course. And uh, so, uh, Training Wills kindly shared her story um, of, of having a newborn. Are you able to share any stories from your own work, Natalie? Just, I suppose, success stories would be great. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think what we can see is each each connection between one of our volunteers and one of our one of the women we support, one of our clients. It's so tailored and individualised and I think those those stories can have all sorts of different twists and turns in the way they go. I mean, we can think about some of the postnatal support we've, we've provided have been things like um, helping a woman build the confidence to get on the pram, oh, get on the tram with a pram, mm. um, you know, thinking about mapping out those sort of those routes, wow. um, you know, tagging along to the park with a newborn baby and older children so that the woman has a chance to reconnect with her older children Mm. knowing that someone's safely watching, you know, the baby just across the park. Um, During the birth, I think just, you know, people really feeling confident. Often hospitals can be quite traumatising for women who've previously experienced trauma. For example, if they've experienced sexual abuse, Mm. the process of birth um, can be can be really, really triggering because suddenly people people are touching your body. Um, You may not understand why. Um, But you know, doulas being able to sort of work through and work with the clinical care team, um, you know, to perhaps limit the number of um, staff that are involved in physical examination, Um, you know, keeping the room in a way that is feels 
safe for that woman um, have really you know built their confidence so much and, and our evaluations just repeatedly talk about how much more confident uh, how connected to their bodies and their babies women feel as a result of, of having somebody that's there as a birth support for them. Wow I wouldn't even have thought of some of those things so thank you for bringing them to our attention Natalie. I, you mentioned their sort of downstream effects and I wondered do people kind of come back to your service and, and give you updates? Um, that's something we really work on we certainly have repeat clients um, so people mm. might come back to us with the with the subsequent pregnancy and we feel like that's a really good mm. um, endorsement and and certainly you know we sort of we do keep in touch with with some people um, we've been really lucky to have um, sort of completing the full circle um, one of our clients who used our services has now trained as a doula and is oh, a volunteer wow. doula providing services <laughs> um, and that's really spoken to a, a need that we've heard from the women in our community that they'd really love to have a doula who shares their mm. um, their language and culture um, and we've also been working on that we've recently started sort of training programs um, for bilingual and bicultural um, women who want to take that path of becoming doulas so I think that's something we're really doing to I guess move away from that Gwyneth Paltrow stereotype <laughs> you know making sure that that access to a doula is something that people have but also thinking about how to take that as an employment pathway is also something that women from all communities um, can can consider. It sounds like it must be a really amazing group of women who are volunteering their time for this it's not a small ask is it this is a pretty big job it's they're taking abs- on. Yeah it's absolutely not a small ask and we are so privileged to work with this amazing group of women um, who are volunteers um, many of them are running running their own doula practices or are studying to be midwives or retired midwives. All of them have full busy lives with caring responsibilities and work. And um, But I think when we speak to our volunteers, this is something that's really special for them. They're very passionate um, about really building a sort of a woman-centred and a human-centred birth system, um, which we feel that despite all of the amazing things we do have in our maternal health system, that's what's missing. Um, mm. So we're looking at how to, how to build that connection and foster that type of approach. You mentioned there, Natalie, like things that are missing from our uh, maternal health care system. Yeah. Care to expand on that? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I think I think starting starting from a point of saying starting from a point of saying that you know if, if we look at the global perspective, um, the Australian healthcare system, you know, we we have a pretty good healthcare system. Mm. That's great, um, but we also know that there's resources are limited um you know the demands of people working in that system are very high um so we're looking at how to sort of provide that i guess that human-centered and that woman-centered focus um we really feel and thinking back to that question if i was president for the day um i think you know looking at how to rebuild our systems so that people are at the center of them you know if we're trying to improve people's health if we're trying to uh, raise people out of poverty you know we need to think about how that works for people um, not just for the system so I think that's really what we're what we're advocating for for a maternity health system that's respectful and equitable Mm, absolutely Pallavi I'm wondering in your role as a GP you said most of your patients are women Mm. do you is this something you see people particularly new mums feeling socially isolated or Mm. you know going through that sort of pregnancy and early parenthood journey on their own and is it something you've noticed that there needs to be more help out there for these people Mm, enormously also i just loved that whole interview that was so moving (laughs) (laughs) i'm a number one fan right here (laughs) Um, absolutely i I see that all the time i also see lots of um uh women from a a called population so that's culturally and linguistically diverse women um and 
consider that if you're raised in Melbourne, your parents live in Melbourne, your in-laws live in Melbourne, uh, maybe you've got lots of friends here, you have huge social network and help with a baby. But consider the women like the women that Natalie was just talking about with the you know, maybe a refugee or an asylum seeker woman, even a migrant who may have left behind all of her family somewhere else and is perhaps not that different in age to us and may already have a two or a three-year-old and now has a new baby on the way. You know, there's an economic pressure for this family for somebody to go out and work. Maybe uh, she has to return to work early, can't afford a lot of mat leave. That is really hard. And, you know, it's easy for us that have good social networks here. Um, but, you know, trying to manage that as a GP is not easy. This is not, it's not a medication I can give. Mm. And saying, why don't you join a gym and make some friends? How is that <laughs> useful? So hard in 15 minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, and there isn't a quick fix here. So, I mean, there's another argument here for cultural groups and um, religious groups and how supportive they can be for women, mothers groups that keep in mind that not everybody has the same culture and experience of life, uh, obstetric care, pregnancy, parenting. Um, not that we're trying to create racial divides here. Please, please don't think that's what mm. I'm petitioning for. But there is a there is a good argument for making sure everyone has the cultural support that they need, mm. yeah. um, which is what I mean, the, the point you were making about sustainability and and trying to train up some of the women who use your mm. service to then be volunteers is a terrific way of doing this. Yeah, no, we, we feel that that's a really important component of, of our work. Um, I think it's also just recognising that that sort of particularly tailoring needs to the individual woman's circumstances and whether that is um, sort of a, a cold focus, which is which is critical for so many of our, our women, um, but also things like, you know, we work with a lot of women who are experiencing homelessness or um, have experienced family violence. And often, you know, there may be services available like childbirth education and things like that, but it just doesn't fit with their circumstances. You know, everybody else is talking about how they've set up the nursery really well and they're thinking about where they're going to sleep tonight with their yeah. small family. Um, so. I think that's where we're also trying to raise awareness with with GPs, with midwives, um, with people inside the system um, around sort of perhaps recognising if the woman that, that they're working with in a clinical setting may have some of these issues and then thinking about what they can do to connect them to other services and support. Absolutely. Speaking of connecting to services, Natalie, I was just wondering if we know someone or someone wants to get in contact with Birth for Humankind, maybe they want to volunteer as a doula, how might they do that? Yeah, fantastic. I mean, the best thing is to, to check out our website, um, so birthforhumankind.org, um, and there you'll see we, we do sort of volunteer intakes um, two to three times a year. We're about to do the next one um, next week, but, you know, certainly later in the year. Um, it is a skilled volunteer position, so you need to have either sort of to be a doula or have some other kind of connection um, with the birth support. Uh, but as I said, we do have a lot of uh, midwives, nurses, um, you know, different different types of skills. But there's lots of other ways you can connect with us and support with us too. Um, and you can either refer women to our service or women can refer themselves on the website. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the last few minutes here on our special International Women's Day episode, I thought we'd just go around the room and have a little chat about small things we can do today to, I guess, 
live up to our feminist ideals. Is that a good way of putting it? <laughs> Love it. What do you reckon? Yep. Pallavi, why don't you go first? Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Centaur greasy, which you can't see right now. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I guess mine is a point um, training wheels uh, related to what you mentioned before about, you know, the, the doctor whose dad was a doctor who comes from a great network, really supported, and they just keep tapping each other on the shoulder for more and more opportunities. So um, what I, I, I try and do and what a, a lot of terrific people around me do is when there is a great opportunity that, you know, they need a recommendation for a speaker or to run an event or for a job opportunity um, to tap someone who is outside of that very privileged network, mm -hmm. someone who truly deserves it and maybe faces barriers that make it harder for them to get tapped on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's how the world goes around. Mm -hmm. We get tapped on the shoulder for things. Um, so, you know, the woman, the woman of color, the differently abled woman, um, someone who represents the LGBTQI community, someone who is what we call, um, a, you know, in a minority area of this population um, to give them a voice. And I'm going to add that quick point that I love to make, which is diversity is not the same as inclusion. Um, the way it's been explained to me is that diversity is getting a seat on the table and inclusion is making sure they have a voice at the table. Mm. Excellent distinction there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Natalie, have Am you I got next? anything you'd like to share? <laughs> sure. In um, I mean, I guess I've just been thinking about that idea of um, talking of, of having a pause to sort of listen to people and really listen to them. Um, and whether that is, you know, somebody who's pregnant or has recently had a baby, that's a really good time to be open for listening, not sort of giving advice, but just, just listening. But just in our general life, I think holding that space to actually really hear what people are going through um, and then that sets the scene for them to be able to think about what to do next. I think we can be really quick to jump in and sort of, you know, direct and, and, and then just talk about our own problems. But, um, yeah, I think if we can all just hold a bit of that space for, for listening, then um, people might feel a bit more included and be able to get their voice at the table as well as just sitting there. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. thought. Thank you, Natalie. And it's, it's close to what my suggestion was going to be as well. And that was just if there are women in your life and you're wondering what it's like, what you can do to help them, just ask. Just mm. ask the women mm. in your life, yeah. what's it like? You know, is this this thing that I read, is that true? Is that what it's like to be a woman? You know, do you do you feel scared on the street at night? Do you mm. need help at home with your baby? Mm. Is breastfeeding, you know, do you feel pressure to breastfeed? Was it hard for you? Was it easy for you? Just ask and listen and have an open mind and, yeah, yeah. be available, I think. Mine was really, really simple and uh, in the time we've got left, I was just literally going to tweet the show to um, <laughs> to have kind of more meaningful content on social media about International Women's Day, sort of getting back to what Pallavi was saying earlier about Instagram being super superficial sometimes around, on this topic. So we're going to have some gutsy social media content coming your way. I love it. That's Yay. a great idea. <laughs> and yeah. speaking of social media, please check out the Radiotherapy Facebook, Radiotherapy on 3RRR. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening this morning. Thank you, Dr. G-Spot, for all of your insightful contributions Thank this you morning. so much for having me. It's been brilliant. Dr. Pallavi Prathivadi, thank you for coming along. Natalie Konjic from Birth for Humankind, thank you for being here. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.